Chapter 35 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 35 Olaf Tryggvason, The Introduction of Christianity in Norway. Tryggve Olafsson, the grandson of Harald Horfagra, who ruled over the districts east of the Christiania Fjord, was slain by the sons of Eric Bloodaxe, as already stated. His wife Astrid fled, says the saga, and sought refuge on a lonely island where her son Olaf Tryggvason was born. His birth occurred, probably, in 963 or 964. With her child, she came to her father, Erik Bjudeskala, at Oprudstader, in the district of Jederen, in southwestern Norway. But as the wicked Queen Gunhild sent spies to learn her whereabouts, she continued her flight to her father's friend, Haakon Gamla, in Sweden. But even here she felt unsafe because of Gunhild's machinations, and she determined to seek refuge at the court of Grand Duke Vladimir of Gardarike, Russia, where her brother Sigurd was staying. On the voyage across the Baltic Sea they were attacked by Vikings, and Queen Astrid and her boy Olaf were taken prisoners. Mother and child were separated, and both were sold as slaves in Estonia. Not very long afterward, a merchant by the name of Loden, a wealthy man of good family from the district of Viken, found Astrid at a slave market in Estonia, and brought her back to Norway, where they were married. Olaf remained in slavery about six years, until his uncle Sigurd finally found him and brought him to Holmgard, Novgorod, where he was reared at the court of Grand Duke Vladimir. That Olaf was reared at the court of the Grand Duke seems to be true. It is mentioned also by Hafrud von Dreyeskald in his Olavsdrapa, which deals with Olaf's life prior to his arrival in Norway. But the numerous legendary tales which cluster about the magic figure of Olaf Tryggvason throw about his early youth a deep twilight of romance, which renders obscure even what little is known about this period of his career. From this obscure background he enters the historical arena as a young man, tall, beautiful, strong, and athletic beyond all Norsemen ever mentioned, says Snorra. At the age of twelve he began his career as Viking chieftain in the Baltic Sea. The saga states that some time afterward he came to Vendland, to King Burislav, and married his daughter Gira. He aided his father-in-law in his wars, but Gira died, and he left Vendland to seek new fields for enterprise in the British Isles. He must have gained great renown as a warrior during these years, for we find him now at the head of a great armament, the nucleus of another great army, which was to begin a new conquest of England. The vicious and incompetent Ethelred the Unready was now king of England. He made no attempt to maintain the efficiency either of army or of navy, though he had been warned of impending danger by repeated Viking attacks which began anew in 978. Aona was sacked, a bloody battle was fought off the Isle of Man in 986, and in 989 a Viking fleet ascended the Severn, and the king was forced to pay tribute to the intruders. These Viking squadrons operating in British waters were led by Jostein, a brother of Olaf's mother Astrid, and Gudmund, a Danish chieftain. When Olaf arrived, they were united into a great fleet under his command. In 991 they came to Staines on the Thames with 93 ships and plundered Kent and Suffolk. Following the coast, the fleet again came to anchor at the mouth of the Blackwater, where Elderman Breitnoth met them with the levies of Essex. A bloody battle was fought at Maldon, in which Breitnoth lost his life, and his forces suffered a disastrous defeat. The details of the battle are vividly described in the old English poem, The Battle of Maldon. The poet tells how Breitnoth, with his herdmen, came riding at the head of his host. Near the Blackwater he dismounted, and addressed words of encouragement and advice to his warriors. The Vikings, who were stationed on the opposite side of the river, sent a herald who addressed Britnoth and his army as follows. 
The bold seamen send me to you, and bid me say that you must at once send rings in return for peace. Better it is for you to buy off this combat with tribute than we fight so hard a battle. Britnoth raised his shield and answered, Hearest thou, seafarer, what this people say? Spears we will give you for tribute, poisonous arrows and tried swords. Tell thy people the unwelcome news, that here stands the earl and his brave army, who will defend this land. Rather shall sword and spear unite us in grim war play than we will pay tribute. The Vikings waited for low tide and crossed the river. Then was the time come when doomed men should fall. A cry went up which brought thither the ravens and the eagles hungry for carrion. Great was the alarm. The hard spears were hurled, the sharp arrows flew, the bows were busy. The shields received the spear points. Bitter was the battle tumult. Heroes fell, on every hand lay fallen warriors. Britnoth fell, but the young elfwine rallied the herdmen, who rushed to the attack to advance their fallen lord, till all of them were cut down. Old Britnoth's heroic fight stands in sharp contrast to Ethelred's weakness and planless inactivity. After the Battle of Maldon, he bought peace from the invaders by paying them ten thousand pounds of silver, an enormous sum at that time, when the taxes of the whole kingdom were only half that amount. The following year, the king and the Witten decreed that all ships which were worth anything should be gathered together at London, in order that they might try, if they could, anywhere and trap the army from without, says the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. But the attempt failed. About this time, Olaf Tryggvason must have accepted the Christian faith. It is said that on a little island he met a hermit who foretold him his career, and that he and his men were baptized. At this time, King Svein Hugesheg of Denmark also came to England. Olaf and Svein united their forces, but Olaf still remained the real leader. In 993, Bambro was taken by storm, and Lindsay was harried. The following year, a large Viking army was organized, and Friesland and the northern coast of Germany were harried. Who the leaders of this host were is not stated, but Skaldic verses point to Olaf Tryggvason and Svein Hugesheg. In the fall of 994, Olaf and Svein again appeared on the Thames with a fleet of 94 ships and tried to take London. In this attempt they failed, but they harried the neighboring districts, and Ethelred bought peace by granting them Southampton for winter quarters, and by paying them 16,000 pounds of silver. The king now sought to win Olaf Tryggvason, and sent a bishop to negotiate with him. Olaf visited the king at Andover, where he was confirmed by Bishop Elfie of Winchester, and a treaty of peace was made, in which he solemnly promised to never again wage war on England, a pledge which he loyally kept. A great ambition now fired his zeal for worthier undertakings. He would no longer be a Viking chieftain, but a crusader. To regain the throne of his fathers, and to convert his people to Christianity became his great aim. He separated from Svein Hugesheg, and took no further part in the conquest of England. Olaf Tryggvason was the most chivalric and heroic of all the early kings of Norway. Saga and tradition extol him as a leader of men, a beau ideal of a hero. The Olaf Tryggvason saga says, King Olaf was in all respects the most capable man in Norway of whom there is any record. He was stronger and more dexterous than any other person, and many stories are told about him, one being that he scaled the Smalserhorn and fastened his shield near the top of the mountain, another that he helped one of his herdmaid, who had climbed up the mountain so far that he could neither ascend nor descend. The king climbed up and carried him down under his arm. The king could walk on the oars on the outside of his ship, the long serpent, while his men were rowing. He could play with three swords at a time in such a way that one would always be in the air. He could wield the sword equally well with both hands, and could throw two spears at the same time. He was the most cheerful and jovial of men, kind and condescending, impetuous in everything, generous and distinguished among his men. 
He was the bravest of all in battle, but very cruel when he became angry. Both at home and in the British Isles he became a hero in tale and tradition. In England his name was changed to Havelock. It has been thought that Havelock was Olaf Kvaran, but Alexander Bugge holds that the life of Kvaran could finish no basis for the Havelock poem, but that the incidents narrated in the poem correspond point for point with the stories told of Olaf Tryggvason's early life. Early in the summer of 995, Olaf Tryggvason set sail for Norway with a small fleet. The Heimskringla tells us that Hawken Jarl sent his agents to lure him to Norway, where he had laid plans to kill him. But as Olaf, the scion of the royal house of the Inglings, probably would be the last person whom Hawken would wish to see in Norway at that juncture, the story must be an invention of the enemies of Hawken, who wished to paint him as black as possible. It was, no doubt, the people of Trindelagen who sent agents to Olaf, to invite him to come to Norway and rid them of the hated Jarl. Olaf took several missionaries along, Bishop Sigurd, Thjodbrand, Thangbrand, and Thormod, who were to aid him in Christianizing Norway. He went by way of the Orkneys, where he forced the powerful Jarl Sigurd Lodvesson to acknowledge his overlordship and to accept Christianity. When he finally landed in Trindelagen, the people hailed him with enthusiasm. Hawken Jarl was soon deserted and fled, accompanied by his slave, Kark. The Heimskringla tells us how Hawken and Kark hid in an underground pigsty on the estate Remol, where Kark assassinated the sleeping Hawken to get the prize which Olaf had placed on the Jarl's head. The story is too dramatic to be taken literally, but all sources, including the songs of contemporary skulls, agree that Hawken Jarl was ignominiously done to death by treacherous hands. Olaf was now proclaimed king of Norway at the Urething in Trindelagen. No one could be better qualified to become the representative of the new progressive ideas than he. He had spent all his life in foreign lands, and was not bound up in the old traditions of his fatherland, nor was he, like Hawken the Good, indebted to a party for his position as king. He was a convert to Christianity, and was well acquainted with the Christian culture of the British Isles. Famous for his great achievements as a military leader, he came like a man of destiny at a moment when the people hailed him as a deliverer, and rejoiced that a prince of the royal race of the Inglings had come to rule over them. To the popular mind, he was the hero especially protected by fortune. Olaf had favorable wind wherever he sailed, says his old biographer. He possessed the indomitable energy of a crusading warrior. He was the brilliant man of action, who dazzled his followers with ever new exploits. His charming and inspiring personality won the hearts and fascinated the minds of his countrymen, and he became popular as no other king of Norway. He was one of those fortunate individuals, says E. Sars, before whom destiny places great problems and who possesses the ability to solve them. There was no one in Norway at this moment who could openly resist so able and popular a king. Hawken Jarl's sons, Eric and Sven, had left the country, the Danish officials in the northern districts were driven away, and the whole kingdom of Norway was once more united under Olaf Tryggvason's rule. King Olaf entered upon the great task of Christianizing Norway with true crusading zeal. To what extent political motives strengthened his resolve to bring about this great change, it is impossible to say though statesmen like Foresight might have made it clear to him that the new national kingdom could find but little support in the old system of worship and social ideas, while the Christian church, if once established, would give the king new dignity and increase the stability of the kingdom. Christianity was no longer wholly unknown to the Norwegian people at this time. We have seen how communication with the Christian countries during the Viking period had produced an ever-increasing influx of new ideas, which had already effected great changes both in the social and religious life of the people. Belief in the old gods was waning, and rationalism and religious indifference were rapidly spreading among the higher classes. The myths themselves were in a stage of transformation and decay. 
Christian captives of war had told the story of Christ and the saints to many an interested listener. Missionaries had preached the Christian faith in the days of Hawken the Good, and King Harold Blotton's efforts to introduce Christianity in Viken had borne fruit. Still, the common people, who perhaps never had grasped the intricate and lofty myths of the Asa faith, whose religious life consisted chiefly of fetish worship and of various forms of sorcery practiced by means of incantations, amulets, and the like, were probably wholly untouched by these new ideas. Among the upper classes, the old worship still retained its political importance as a state institution closely bound up with the old social order. The time had, indeed, come when the new religion would be received by many without resistance, but the conversion of the whole people could not be accomplished rapidly without the use of coercion and force. It seems that King Olaf never thought that it could be brought about by teaching and persuasion alone. The true inwardness of the Christian faith and spirit was still foreign to him. He was yet to such an extent a Viking that he had no hesitation in bringing his subjects to the baptismal font by bribes or by force. Where gentler means had failed, and baptism and conversion he regarded as identical. His missionaries labored zealously, but the people often cared little for their preaching and understood it still less. The king is the central figure, always busy directing the work of conversion, intimidating some, gaining the friendship and goodwill of others, coming to the rescue with his influence and power, and often dealing hard blows when preaching and persuasion proved unavailing. Sigurd, or John, as he was called in Latin, held the rank of bishop, and was the leader of the missionaries. He was a gentle and Christian-spirited man, who represented the best features of the Anglian church. It appears that he was of Norse descent. He probably came from the Viking settlements of Northumbria, and he could, no doubt, address the people in their own vernacular, which was an advantage, though the language at this time offered no great difficulty. There was one language in England and Norway until William the Bastard conquered England, says the saga. This must not be taken too literally, but the Norse and Anglo-Saxon tongues were yet so nearly alike that the two peoples seems to have been able to converse freely together. The priest Thangbrand, supposed to have been the renegade son of a Saxon count, was a harsh and violent man, to whom the true Christian spirit seems to have been wholly unknown. It is deserving of special mention that the first missions to Norway came from England, where the gospel was preached, not in the Latin church language commonly used at that time, but in the people's own tongue, and where the church still retained its popular and apostolic character to a degree unknown on the continent. Bishop A. Kr. Bang says, Of all the nations which in the first half of the Middle Ages accepted the Christian faith, probably no other people developed so genuine, warm, and deep a Christianity as the Anglo-Saxons. Christian life flourished among them, the word of God was translated into their own tongue, and they had many gifted poets who sang their praise to the Lord in their own vernacular. What especially gave Anglo-Saxon Christianity its distinguishing features was the delightful blending of Christian with popular elements which we still admire. We need not long study their religious literature to be deeply touched by observing how the northern heroic spirit had become transfigured by the holy Christian spirit. The daughter church of Norway could, therefore, receive a valuable inheritance from the mother church of England. I need not mention the practical features of church organization which were transplanted from English to Norwegian soil. It was more important that the Old Norse church language found in Anglo-Saxon a natural starting point and a closely related pattern. And still more significant, perhaps, was the circumstance that later Norwegian ecclesiastics learned from their Anglo-Saxon predecessors to honor and esteem their mother tongue, and to be as eager as they were able to preach to the people in their own language. That the kings themselves introduced Christianity was of no small importance to the future development. Most significant in this connection was the fact that Christianity thereby from the beginning was closely linked to the state as a popular church, a state church. 
In the early Anglo-Saxon church, the Christian doctrines are often found expressed in a heroic strain which echoes the dying martial notes of primitive Germanic poetry. Christ is often represented as a young hero who vanquishes evil and conquers his enemies, rather than as the suffering savior atoning for the sins of mankind. The runic inscription on the old Ruthwell cross represents the cross as saying, stripped himself God Almighty when he wanted to mount the cross courageously in the sight of all men. I bent, etc. A very similar inscription is found in the old poem, Dream of the Rude, by some attributed to Kynwulf. Stripped himself then the young hero, that was God Almighty, strong and brave. He mounted the high cross courageously in the sight of many, when he wanted to set mankind free. I trembled when the hero embraced me, I dared not bend to the earth. Such a view of Christ would naturally appear to the warlike Norsemen. This was a Christianity which they could understand. Their quick imagination seized upon these popular features by means of which they could span the gulf between the old and new spheres of thought. Christ, the heroic new god of the Christians, more powerful than Thor, superior in every way to the old divinities, would ultimately gain the victory, they thought. The Njal's saga tells how in Iceland a woman by the name of Steinford disputed with the missionary Thangbrand, saying, Have you not heard that Christ was challenged to a duel by Thor, and that he dared not fight with him? I have heard, said Thangbrand, that Thor would be but dust and ashes unless God would let him live. A man by the name of Finn, who had heard of the power of Christ, disputed with the bishop, but as he was convinced by his arguments, he exclaimed, This is something different from what I have heard before, that no god was equal in power to Thor and Odin. Now I understand from what you say of Christ, about whom you preach, that while he was in this world anyone could treat him almost as he pleased, but after death he became so powerful that he raided hell, and bound Thor, the chieftain of the gods, and since that time nothing can resist him. Christ can bind Thor. He is that powerful god foreshadowed even in the Edda songs as the one, coming from above to rule over all. Christianity, says Kaiser, no longer appeared at this time in its original purity. A covering of human inventions, superstitions, and errors had been wrapped about its divine kernel. But the covering was brilliant, inviting to the senses, impressive to the feelings. This form of Christianity was, probably, better suited to appeal to a people in the stage of intellectual development of the old Norsemen than if it had been preached in a purer form. King Olaf began his missionary work in Viken, where his father Trygve had been king, and where Christianity, because of early missionary efforts, was best known. Here he could count on greater goodwill and more general support than elsewhere. After winning his own relatives for the new faith, he secured the cooperation of the powerful chieftains, the brothers Herning and Thorgir by giving them his half-sisters Ingrid and Ingigurd in marriage, and by bestowing on them great honors and rich estates. When the leaders had been won by granting of such favors, the people could more easily be persuaded to follow their example and receive baptism. The church service was made as showy as possible. The rich vestments worn by the priests, the burning incense, the impressive ceremonies, appealed strongly to the listeners. The hell torments were pictured in vivid colors, and the missionaries showed how God and the saints were aiding King Olaf. The people were rapidly won for the Christian faith, but not a few resisted obstinately. Odd Monk tells how Olaf dealt hard blows to those who offered resistance. Those who opposed Christianity, says Snorra, he punished severely. Some he killed, some he caused to be maimed, and some he drove out of the country. The people were summoned to the thing, where the king bade them receive the Christian faith, and after they were baptized, he destroyed the temples and everything that reminded them of the old worship. Before long, the whole district of Viken was Christianized. The Heimskringla, 
states that he also visited the district of Ringerike, where King Sigurd Sira reigned, and King Sigurd was baptized, together with his wife, Asta, and her little boy of a former marriage, Olaf Haraldsson, who later became King Olaf the Saint. From Viken, King Olaf proceeded to the districts of Gulathingslag, on the southwest coast. Here, as in Viken, he seems to have won the chieftains through private negotiations. The powerful Erling Sjolgson of Sola married the king's half-sister Ostrid, who became the king's ardent supporter, and received great preferments and honors. In the little island of Moster, on the coast of Hordaland, where a famous heathen temple was found, the king assembled a great thing, probably in 996, to confer with the people regarding Christianity. The saga tells that three men were chosen to speak in opposition to the proposal made by the king that they should accept the Christian faith. But when the first one tried to speak, he was seized with a violent cough, the second speaker began to stammer, and the third became so hoarse that he could say nothing. This caused great merriment, and the people agreed to accept the king's proposal. King Olaf built a church at Moster, the first Christian church building in this part of Norway. A little later, the king summoned another thing at Dragside, near Stadt, on the west coast where the people from Sogen, Firdefilka, Sundmur, and Romsdal met. The king had a strong military force, and gave them the choice between receiving baptism and fighting with him. When they saw that they could not resist him, they submitted and were baptized. After these meetings in Moster and Dragside, Olaf summoned the Gulathing, where Christianity was declared to be the lawful religion of the whole Gulathingslag. The legend of St. Suniva originated in Olaf Tryggvason's time, and seems to have been first officially published at the thing at Dragside. In the rocky caverns on the Norwegian coast in these parts, human bones and skeletons have been found, often in a good state of preservation. They may be the remains of persons who have sought refuge in these places, or of people who in prehistoric times have used these caverns as dwellings. Such a find was made in a cavern in the island of Selja, and the rumor spread that the bones were the remains of St. Suniva, a pious Irish princess, who fled to escape a vicious suitor and of the holy persons who accompanied her across the sea. Miracles were said to happen in this place. King Olaf and Bishop Sigurd visited the cavern while the thing was in session at Dragside, and found there the bones referred to. A church was erected there, and July 8th, supposed to be the saintly princess's death day, was consecrated at the St. Sunivamas in 996. Norway had thus received her first national saint. A monastery was also found there, the ruins of which are still to be seen in the island. King Olaf had now introduced Christianity in southern and southwestern Norway. The way had here been paved for the new faith, and the resistance offered to it had been weak and half-hearted. But Trindelagen, with its famous old temples at Lada and Meren, still remained the great bulwark of the Asa faith. Here lived many of the great leaders of the old aristocracy, and the ideas of local autonomy were kept alive. If these populous and well-organized districts, which were properly regarded as the center of military and economic strength in the country at that time, should represent a united front against the missionary efforts of the king, the opposition would be formidable enough to endanger the whole movement. Olaf was, no doubt, aware of this, and when he entered Trondelagen, his tactics quickly assumed a military character, as if he well knew what would happen. Odd Monk tells that at Christmas time, he prepared a feast at Lada, where he was now staying, and invited all the chieftains of Trondelagen. When they were seated at the table, the king arose and spoke to them about the religious situation. He said that if he should return to the old faith, he would revive the very ancient custom of human sacrifice, but he would not sacrifice slaves but the chieftains themselves. 
He told them that an armed force had surrounded the house and stood ready to do his bidding. The chieftains understood the situation and submitted to the king. Olaf destroyed the temple at Lada and carried away its treasures, but the people gathered an army and he proceeded to the district of Holagaland till the storm blew over. In this far northern province, the old pagan religion still flourished in all its original vigor. The chieftains, Horek of Tjotta, Eivind Kinriva, and Thora Hjort, met the king with an armed force, and he returned to Trendelagen. The situation looked threatening. The people kept a large force in the field, and the king lived as if in a military camp, always surrounded by his army. He tried to win the leaders in various ways, but with little success. In 998, he summoned the Frostathing, where all the chieftains in Trindelagen met, but when he asked them to accept the Christian faith, their leader, Jernsjega, answered that if the king did not desist from his attempt to introduce Christianity, they would do with him as they had done with Hakon Jarl. Olaf spoke words of consolation and promised to meet them again at the thing in Marin. The thing assembled in 999, and Olaf came with a force of 300 men. All the chieftains who were most determined in their resistance to Christianity had also met with an armed force. When the thing was called to order, says the Heimskringla, the king spoke and asked the people to accept the Christian religion. Jernsjega again answered him in behalf of the people, and said that they were of the same opinion now as before that the king should not break the law. We demand, he said, that you take part in the sacrifice as other kings before you have done, and the people shouted their assent. This scene reminds us of the one enacted on a similar occasion between Asbjorn of Medelhus and Hakon the Good. But Olaf was not Hakon. He did not answer Jernsjega, but said that he would go into the temple and look at the sacrifices. As soon as Olaf disappeared in the temple, one of his men cut Jernsjega down at the entrance, and Olaf came out and offered the people the choice of receiving baptism or of fighting with him. Discouraged by the loss of their leader, they submitted and were baptized. Olaf did not wish to stay at Lada, where he was constantly reminded of the old pagan worship. Across the river Need he founded, in 997, the city of Nidaros, later called Trondheim. Here he built a royal hall and erected a church dedicated to St. Clemens, the patron saint of commerce. The city became in time a great center of commercial activity and religious life in Norway. Hologaland was also Christianized. The king won the greedy Horak of Tjota for the Christian faith by granting him large possessions. The stories told in the sagas that Olaf caused Ivan Kinriva and Raud den Rama to be tortured to death because they refused to be baptized are fiction, literary ornaments of the king often used by the saga writers. Norway was now, in a way, Christianized. The heathen temples were destroyed, sacrifices and the practice of sorcery were forbidden by law, churches were built, and Moster, Selja, and Nidaros became centers of Christian life and missionary activity. But the church was still but an infant. No church organization existed. Few were the missionaries who were to instruct the people in the Christian faith, and the old paganism had not been very deeply shaken by King Olaf Tryggvason's crusade. And yet the people had seen, though faintly, the new light, which was now no longer a dream but an experience. Christianity, this strange force, had entered into the people's life and development as a new and recognized factor, under the seal and sanction of the law. End of chapter 35